This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast about taking just a few minutes for you today. Hi, I'm Dr. Margaret, and welcome to my second podcast. On today's show, we're going to talk about dealing with uncertainty and the anxiety that can come from that. It's so important because dealing with uncertainty is really a life skill. And so even if you don't have currently panic or anxiety, I think this might be important for you to hear because certainly it's a life skill that we all need. We're going to be talking about the different diagnostic categories. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but it's how anxiety can express itself. And then who will get anxiety? What is a panic attack? The difference between anxiety and panic, is there a difference or is there not a difference? And the most important thing is what you can do about it. As a clinician for over 20 years, I have made it my goal to always help my patients try to make changes that are important to them. And that means being very solution-oriented. In fact, my motto is, my job's to do myself out of a job. So today we're going to talk about what you actually do about facing and confronting uncertainty and anxiety. The last part of the podcast will be a segment we have every podcast, and that is an answer to a question from a listener. And today that listener is discussing trying to talk to his family about the fact that he'd been diagnosed with depression, and it didn't quite go so well. You may not know it, but anxiety is actually the most prevalent mental disorder in the United States. It outranks depression by several percentage points, with depression being reported in 9 to 10% of the population, but anxiety in 13 to 14% of the population. Is it a physiological state, or is anxiety a feeling? Well, it's both. There's certainly feelings that are associated with anxiety, fear, anger, helplessness, but there's also a physiological response to anxiety, That's part and parcel of the problem, actually. There are parts of our brain that are just highly what you'd call lit up. You can see it on special MRIs. They light up when we're anxious. One is, not going to get too technical here because I can't, (laughs) but one is the amygdala, which is a group of neurons that deal with emotions in the brain, and the paraaqueductal gray, which actually is a part of the brain that helps us with defense mechanisms. This means things like fight, flight, or freeze. So all of these parts of the brain are sending these signals to you that something is terribly dangerous or terribly threatening when in actuality it's not. Anxiety is irrational. Perhaps I should better say anxiety in a clinical sense is irrational because obviously we can be worried or anxious about something that's not irrational. But in a clinical sense, and when anxiety is to be treated because it's becoming too self-destructive or too threatening to a happy, healthy life, then that kind of anxiety is definitely irrational. 
There are distinct diagnostic categories for anxiety. I'm not going to go through them too in detail, just to give you an idea of the different ways that anxiety can express itself. PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, is probably the most commonly known. It's when you've had an out-of-the-ordinary trauma or experience in your life that is not normal for us human beings to handle. And then you have a lot of emotional responses and physiological responses to triggers from that event. For example, of course, the most classic sense is men and women who return from war. But you can have PTSD after an auto accident, after a rape, after a tornado, after anything that could be very threatening to you or very life-changing, not in a positive way. There's generalized anxiety disorder, which has as its one of its strongest components, worry. These are the people that worry all the time. They worry about everything. They worry constantly. They also can be very hypervigilant and highly aroused people. And so they live in a state of almost constant apprehension. There's OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder, which is more about having both mental and physiological responses to anxiety. The mental response is obsessive thinking, constant thoughts that are going over and over and over again in your mind. And then you have certain actions that you're compelled to do to try to handle this anxiety. I think one of the most unusual cases I ever had of this was actually a woman I saw in the psychiatry ER at Parkland Hospital in Dallas when I was in my training as a psychologist. This woman was compelled to take all the living room furniture out of her house and put it in her yard every day. And then she put it back. This was to handle some kind of anxiety that she really couldn't pinpoint when I saw her. Of course, I saw her in an emergency room setting. She had tried working for a moving company, and that really didn't work. It had to be her furniture and her house. I'm not sure exactly what her outcome was. Again, I only saw her uh, in acute care, but it was one of the most unusual. And, you know, we can laugh about it, but it was terrible for her. Then there's panic disorder. The Mayo Clinic tells us that panic disorder is a sudden episode of intense fear that triggers severe physical reactions when there's no real danger or apparent cause. Now, I have panic disorder, and I want to tell you, you feel like you're being invaded by an alien. Your heart starts racing, you can't catch your breath, you sweat, you tremble, you want to flee. This disorder is really, really difficult to have and can be triggered by a lot of things. We'll talk more about panic in a minute. Then there's phobia, which is the intense fear of something like spiders or snakes. I had a patient one time who feared the sunlight, and so he would try to walk in the shadow and not near windows. It was terribly debilitating for his life. Then the sixth kind of diagnostic category for panic is something called social anxiety, It goes far beyond being nervous about going to a party. It means that you have tremendous anxiety when being around other people. It's not exactly shyness. It's more that you have this very anxious reaction. Social anxiety can also turn into what's called agoraphobia, which is the fear of leaving your house. And that is really, really difficult. Now, the interesting thing about 
panic especially or any kind of anxiety is that you can develop a fear of the anxiety itself. You can be panicked about panic. And this can actually build up in your mind where you are fearing that the anxiety will hurt you in some way when really it does not have the capability of doing that. There are many people that head to the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack when actually it's a panic or anxiety attack. So just who will experience panic? I will tell you, or anxiety. I will tell you that it is heavily genetically loaded. I've already shared with you that I have panic disorder. I had a mother with full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder. I had a grandfather who had performance anxiety. So I was pretty well doomed to have some kind of anxiety. There are also triggers, trauma, things like auto accidents that I've already mentioned, tornadoes, natural disasters, um, being raped or abused in any way. So you can develop panic as a response to that abuse or that trauma. Interestingly, I've treated a lot of people that have never had anxiety that they were very aware of, and they only started having anxiety when they became parents. The increased responsibility and maybe even fear of mortality that started happening because they were parents. And again, wanting to bring up that sense of how do you handle the uncertainty of being a parent, the ambiguity of not knowing how exactly to protect your child. Another interesting fact about anxiety is that you don't have to actually experience the trauma to have an anxious or panicked reaction to that trauma. For example, after 9-11, I treated a lot of people who would simply watch the tape so many times they had developed almost a PTSD-like reaction themselves, and they could not get the flashbacks of the Trade Center going down out of and all of the horror that that entailed out of their minds. So you don't have to necessarily experience the trauma itself. Now, for me, we reached one of the most important parts of this segment, what to do about it. I think there are three general steps that we need to follow, and some of these may seem a little counterintuitive. I know that when I first sought treatment for panic, well, I didn't go to a very good therapist for one thing, so that guy didn't help me at all. But there was another therapist named Larry who sat me down and said, Margaret, you hate these panic attacks, don't you? And I said, you betcha I do. I want, I want to be rid of them. And he looked at me and said, that's not going to work. The panicked part of you is just important, as important a part of you as the part that you really like. And we've got to understand and manage that panic, almost to use a slightly romanticized word, I guess, to embrace the panic. I didn't like what he said, but... He was right, and I have said the same thing to so many clients myself in the last few years. So how do you do that? First, you have to accept and honor the anxiety. That's what Larry was telling me to do. And so many experts actually tell you the same thing. In fact, I'm going to quote Reed Wilson, who has written lots of books on panic, panic disorder and obsessive disorder, He reminds us to remember that panic is an unconscious process. You don't get up in the morning and say, oh boy, I hope I have a panic attack today. I'm going to plan that right at three o'clock. It arises out of you unconsciously and much anxiety actually does too. 
So you have to practice a lot. To change something that's an, an unconscious activity, you have to practice managing it, confronting it. And it takes a while. This is not, this really can't be rushed. So you use what Reed Wilson would call paradox to go toward the anxiety. Here's his quote. Whatever outcome you fear, work to find a way to accept that outcome as a possibility. How would I handle it? One of the things that I talk about a lot in my practice with people with anxiety is that we often reach a why in the road where we're trying to make a choice about, we're trying to make a decision about which way to go. And if you think about a literal road, sometimes you can look down that road and you can't see very far because it's covered up with debris or, and you you try to look down the road and you can't see it. The other road, perhaps you can see more clearly. So what I suggest to people is they clear the debris. They think, well, this isn't a choice that I particularly would want to make, but if I had to make it, how would I handle the loss of that choice? This directly confronts your uncertainty and asks you to think, well, if, the, if perhaps the most egregious thing that I can think of happened to me, then how would I handle it? How would I cope? Remind yourself of your skills, remind yourself of your strengths, and that will help with the uncertainty. There's certainly more specific kinds of steps of what to do about it. There are different therapy techniques, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I think the most important thing for someone who is experiencing a lot of anxiety is to go get a physical. Because there are actually a lot of medical conditions that can mimic anxiety or even cause anxiety. Hyperthyroidism is one of them. You can be withdrawing from certain medications, and that's another So definitely go get a physical. I certainly want anybody that I'm treating for anxiety, I don't want to be treating someone for a psychological problem when there's really a physical problem. There can be both, of course, but I want them checked out. The different therapeutic techniques can be involved in anxiety. I'm just going to name a few. There's cognitive behavioral therapy that really focuses on confronting those negative irrational thoughts like, I couldn't stand it if such and such happened, or I'll die if I don't blank, whatever that happens to be. What people in CBT talk a lot about is that you're building a reality with your words and your thoughts. What you tell yourself about uncertainty is going to become your reality. And if you tell yourself you can't handle something, then you're much more likely to not be able to handle it. Like, I'm a little anxious doing these podcasts, but I'm telling myself, I can do this. I may be nervous. I may be anxious. I will pull out what skills I do have, and I'll give it my all. Another very specific type of technique that I like to use a lot that's sort of a cognitive behavioral technique, it's called a worry journal. Again, you're sort of honoring the worry while at the same time trying to contain it. This is especially good for people with generalized anxiety disorder or just worriers. So what you suggest is that they sit down at a certain time every day and write down everything they're worried about, every little thing, and write for 10 or 15 minutes furiously. Then close the journal and tell themselves they're not going to worry about that again until the same time the next day. And what will happen is you'll be you will begin to contain that anxiety for, frankly, people get tired of writing the same thing over and over and over again. So it helps them to work through and manage that anxiety. It's called a worry journal. 
The other types of therapy that are really good for anxiety, EMDR, or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, is wonderful, especially for trauma. Anytime you have a lot of emotional arousal to a certain memory, then if you go seek out an EMDR therapist, they will help you with that so that you can think about something that perhaps happened to you, but you will not have the emotional arousal to it. It's really a wonderful technique. There's also hypnosis, which can be very helpful with all kinds of anxiety. Again, look for somebody who's specially trained in in hypnosis. Don't just settle for somebody that says they do hypnosis and they have gotten no training for it. There's, of course, also mindfulness and meditation, which more and more research now is coming out on the benefits of that. I've been actually trying to learn again how to meditate, and I'm finding that it's very helpful. And if I stay mindful and more in the present, I'm less likely to be future-oriented, which, of course, is what anxiety is all about. You've got your one of your feet firmly planted in the future, if not both of them, rather than in the present. The other, very pragmatically and practically, is exercise. Exercise is fantastic, and this, of course, is aerobic exercise or any kind of exercise that keeps your heart rate up. I recently saw a study where the more consistently you exercise, the longer is the effect of the exercise, meaning if you exercise consistently during the week, the hours that the effect of that exercise has will be longer and longer. That's sort of a confusing way to say that. But hopefully that's helpful. Then, of course, there is medication. And medication can be extremely effective with anxiety. Some people remain on it and don't really do the rest of these things to address the anxiety. And although it may help some, I believe medication is sort of like throwing a rope down a well and you're at the bottom of the well. You've still got to climb that rope ladder. And I don't know if you've ever climbed a rope ladder, but it's pretty tough. So I think medication is wonderful and can give people fresh mental energy and a greater sense of that they have control over their thoughts and their thinking, but it's not the be-all, end-all. There are different kinds of medications. Some of them are addictive, so you have to be kind of careful with meds. Now I want to get to the segment of the podcast where we read a question from a listener. This is Mike. I was diagnosed with clinical depression three months ago by my GP. She prescribed Wellbutrin, and although I still have some tough times, I'm 100% better than I was. The first two people I tried to talk to were my wife and my brother and received negative responses from both. It made me sorry I ever mentioned it. Since then, I haven't tried to reach out to anyone else, but I watch every YouTube video or documentary I can find. I also search for any article or depression on depression, trying to learn everything I can. That's how I found your blog. I did see some Facebook support groups, but I can't join them for the risk of family and friends finding out. I also can't like articles I read about depression for the same reason. Thanks again, and do you have any help? What I've learned in watching a lot of people try to have what are probably going to be very difficult conversations with family members is that it's always a good idea to talk about talking, meaning that you say to that family member, you know, I'm, I need to talk to you about something that I've been going through the last few months or that I've realized in the last few months. And 
I'm not sure how you're going to respond to it. So when would, are you willing to do that? When could we do that? And generally the, the answer is yes, but you sort of set it up. You're asking them to recognize that they may be surprised or perhaps even displeased about what you have to say. One of the reasons for this is because when you tell a family member that you are suffering from depression or anxiety, one, it's very hard for them not to make that about them. We tend to personalize what we hear from our partners or our family members or our loved ones. It's scary for them to hear that perhaps you're not the person they thought you were. There are too many interconnections. And so it can be a very, very difficult conversation to have. The other thing is they really don't know what to say. Many people don't know what to say to someone who's depressed or anxious. They don't have the vocabulary and they don't have the experience. So they'll, they'll reject you instead of trying to understand. So what I would recommend is that you have some sort of educational material with you. You have a book for them to read. You have a magazine or an online article for them to read. You can also try your hand with a trusted friend first rather than a family member. Friends can usually be more objective than family members. I want to thank you all today for joining me on Self Work. I want to invite you to my website, which is drmargaretrutherford.com. You can also join me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret. I would love your comments. Please let me know what you'd like, what perhaps topics you'd like for me to cover. And I appreciate you listening to such a beginner podcaster. It's exciting for me. It's new. And I, I, will, I will count on your comments to help me get better. Also, please notice the links I've provided. I've linked both Reed Wilson's book and Dan Harris's book and a couple of interesting articles about anxiety. And most of all, I'd love you to subscribe. I'm planning on doing these podcasts bi-weekly, and it would mean a lot to me to have some subscribers. So I know there are actually people out there that are listening and caring and, and hopefully benefiting from the wisdom that I've learned from my patients through the years. So again, join me on my website, drmargaretrutherford.com, or you can actually email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com and I will get back with you. It's confidential, by the way. I'm the only one who sees my email. Thanks so much for joining. I hope you subscribe and look forward to your feedback. See you next time on Self Work.